Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 260. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to review and discuss the incredible journey. Now what's incredible about this is that we had picked this because we've been talking about some of the classic Walt Disney era films, you know, while Walt was alive. And it just so happened to be that not only is this film one of his more revered films, it's also celebrating its 60th anniversary this week. Yes. Uh, November 20th, 1963 is when it was released. Um, it was based on a book, uh, a best-selling book. Yeah. So it's easy to see where Walt wanted to acquire and produce this one. Yeah. I mean, he acquired the rights within a year, I think, of this thing becoming a bestseller. And like, it's just so typical for the things that he would do. Best-selling book, we need the rights pay for it let's get it let's be the ones that have this it was a, obviously it was easier to get this than it was to get mary poppins but it like for all of these reasons this kind of fell into place perfectly to review this film when we're talking about classic walt as the as the gentleman himself it is but i can see where he was interested beyond just the popularity of the book and acquiring this from a business standpoint we know that he was an animal lover we know that he had dogs it's what inspired Lady and the Tramp. But the book in and of itself has kind of an incredible story. Uh, it was written by Sheila Burnford, and she based it around her own pets. She had two dogs and a cat. They were her companions uh, in England during World War II. And then I believe um, she migrated over to Canada with them. Uh, and that's where she got the inspiration for her story. Well, a lot of us know this story because... We all know this was remade into Homeward Bound. So that's how most of us were introduced. However, how does this film do in terms of holding your interest? Is this as compelling a story? Does this deserve to be known as, as one of Walt's most revered films? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code Monoreal at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. We meet Tao, a Siamese cat, Luau, the yellow lab, and uh, Bodger, the English bull terrier. They are in the care of John Longridge while their family temporarily moves to Oxford as John Hunter, the father of the family, takes a short-term lecture contract. Uh, as John prepares to go on a hunting trip, he writes a note for his housekeeper, Mrs. Oaks, instructing her on how to care for the animals. However, that night, while exploring the house, uh, Tao, Teo, it's Teo, because I thought they were calling him Tailcat, Teo pushes half the note into the fireplace. Um, the next morning, John lets the animals out for a run and leaves for his trip. The animals, believing they were abandoned, decide to leave and head west back home. Luauth, the 
younger dog takes the lead as the elder Bodger struggles to keep up on their 200-mile journey, all while Mrs. Oaks believes the animals are with John because she only has half of the story. The animals struggle with the hazards of such a long journey, dealing with fighting off starvation as well as, well as other wildlife such as bears and unfriendly bobcats. They do meet Jeremy, a recluse who is kind to animals, but unfortunately suffers from dementia and is unable to help them. Thankfully, Luauth captures a rabbit to help sustain them for a few more days. Upon leaving Jeremy's shack, they head towards the river, and while Luauth and Bodger easily cross it, Teo is swept away when the beaver dam he was crossing collapses. Unable to rescue him, Luauth and Bodger fear him dead, but press on. Teoth lives, however, and is discovered by a young girl and her family who nurse him back to health. Teo sneaks out at night, knowing he must find Luauth and Bodger. Eventually, they reunite and continue to trek on, and after three weeks of hunting, Luauth comes face-to-face with a porcupine and ends up getting stung. A kind hunter and his wife find the dogs and remove the porcupine quills from Luauth's face. John returns home to learn that the dogs and the cat have been missing for weeks and assumes that they have headed home by instinct. As he makes phone calls to park rangers, they start to track the animals down, but believe there is no way they could have all survived. John breaks the news to the hunters as to what has happened, and the children remain optimistic, though sad. At Peter's birthday party, John tells him of a puppy waiting for him at the kennel. And Peter, initially excited, becomes very sad at the same time, and as all seem lost, all three animals arrive home reunited with their family. Before we start, I just want to apologize in advance to the listeners if you hear any squeaky toys because currently our dog is ripping apart his pumpkin spice latte chew. Yeah, we're the we're, dog that would not survive a day in the wilderness. Yes. These these dogs crossed 200 miles. He is eating his pumpkin spice latte toy from Gamma. Okay. Just <laughs> from Gamma just, okay. on Thanksgiving. <laughs> All right, that's that's just references to what we're dealing with here. Oh, right, let's get into it. Um, I'm just gonna hit this right off the bat, and I'm gonna say this once, and I'm not gonna say it again. Holy cinematography! Oh my god! From the opening, so credits. good, so beautiful. I I could have watched an hour of this, just the helicopter flying over the the fall foliage. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, this setup though is pretty interesting to me. I like this little cabin. I believe that they were shooting, um, on location in Mm -hmm. Ontario. Um, I don't think that this was a set build just because it feels, I mean, it feels super cozy, which it should, but, um, it also feels tight. Like where they have the camera, I get the impression that, they didn't have a lot of space to work with. So you don't have an open fourth wall. I really don't believe that this was a set. And if it was, kudos. Um, This setup, though, seems like John Longridge is one of the humans that is helping them along on their journey. Not like he is the one that is, in fact, responsible for losing them. Yeah, I thought, because they, they introduced the idea that they're going to be telling part of this story in flashback from the opening credits, right? So I'm assuming that he's holding them until the hunters arrive. But um, I like the flashback because I don't think it serves as a pace killer. Sometimes flashbacks can. And I like the introduction narration 
I think it does a perfect job of getting us caught up, introducing up to introducing us to these characters very quickly because this film does not have a lot of dialogue. It has a narration. A lot of narration. The whole film basically is narration because unlike Homeward Bound, the the animals don't speak to each other. So it's all done through the narrator. There's very little banter when you do have the humans on screen. So I thought that this was a good way to get us set up. And I, I didn't feel lost. And I didn't feel that they rushed it either. For the most part, I agree. I like that they use the narration to get us set up very quickly. But to your point about the flashbacks, I'm wondering if they sort of did an intentional misdirect here. And that's why I'm feeling like this is a stop along the journey because they are playing with those flashbacks. Cause to me, this is reading like that final stop and where they were hunkering down for the winter before right. they're reunited with their family. Um, that's about as much as I like the narration though, because while I think it lends to an amazing performance from the animal actors because you do get so many tight shots of their faces where they're emoting and they use it to edit this film so brilliantly. Um, it's great for the animals, but I think the rest of the dialogue suffers because of it. There's one point where the narration is straight over dialogue. It was a bad edit. I don't know how they left it in there when they're doing the initial initial setup where yeah. um, they're discussing the move to Oxford. Uh, it competes over Mrs. Hunter's, um, you know, she's like offering somebody a plate. And I was like, why would you leave this in? We could have done that without her talking. Yeah. Uh, so that was really awkward. But where it becomes even more problematic for me is that it makes this film feel very see and say, because you are using that narration for the animal point of view. And then you are at the same time reinforcing it through the humans dialogue. So it it starts to feel at some points like bad reality TV when you cut to the one-on-one -on -one interview and they are saying the exact same thing that we just saw play out in a scene. You're supposed to use those reality bites to get into the deeper mindset of your cast. And a lot of times, like in a show like The Kardashians, for example, you the cut... The downfall of Western society. Exactly. You cut to Kim going... I'm so excited because we can't actually see what she's emoting because of the Botox. So that's kind of what this was reminding me of. And I really don't want to tear down a Disney film that much, but I might be more heightened to it because I deal with that sort of use of bite every single day. Yeah. You're looking at this from a very unique perspective. Uh, yeah. And that's where some of the scenes started to drag for me. For example, this initial phone call between John and Mrs. Oaks where they're setting up her coming the next morning. They spend a lot of time on this call with the bad connection and it seems like they're trying to establish the idea that Mrs. Oaks didn't know the animals were going to be home and she's the one who accidentally lets them out. So it sort of feels really odd to me when they just up and leave 
as explained by the narrator, that the call to home is so strong. So I feel like a lot of times this narration is competing against the story in a bad way. See, and I think that the setup is brilliant because it's amazing that as 60 years have gone by, yet with bad phone connection. <laughs> relatable. And, and so relatable that we only get half the story. I thought you were going to get the pizza. No, that's not what I said. Like, you know, it's it's so incredible that this still exists today, but I didn't mind the fact that they spent so much time on that because if it would have just been that Teo knocks half of the note into the fireplace, it may have seemed a little too convenient. I think the fact that we spoke about this you said you're taking the animals. I found the note. It said, you're taking the animals. Like, she would never think twice about it. And and what the other thing that it does is that I think it sets up you feeling very bad for John because it's like no good deed goes unpunished. And he's sitting here trying to do the right thing, prevent the animals from having to be boarded. The family doesn't have to take on the added cost. The, the animals are familiar with me. They'll feel at home. Like, it's such a good-hearted offer. Yes. <laughs> you just feel so bad for the poor guy. And see, that dialogue I really love because they're like, we're not going to bother John with our family problems. And he's like, nope, I got this. That's a great little exchange. Um, you know, and they did set up, too, that he's the the godfather to the little girl. So he's very involved in their life, even though he lives 200 miles away, which we are going to put a pin in that because to me, the time and the distance are also going to come in to play later on. Um, But yeah, I I feel like because we are spending so much time with the humans here, we could have pulled back on a lot of the narration after that initial setup and just let these scenes play out. And then once the animals are on their own, you bring it back in because there there's a lot of talk, um, you know, setting up that the animals are going to leave. And then we spend even more time once Mrs. Oaks gets to the house and she realizes that they're gone. I feel like this drags a little bit because it's said like three times that, oh, no, he must have taken them. He must right. have taken them after she's calling out like we we get it. They're not there. We've established that. And you think that John has them. Let's move on. To I'll the agree journey. with you there. Yeah, that scene feels a little long. But now we are on our incredible journey. You said it before. The animal actors are spectacular. I love how it's shot in that. And it's it's not just the cinematography, but it's also a compliment to the animal actors, how they're able to keep their pace, where Luauth is always in front. Mm-hmm. We, we establish he's the young one, he's the retriever, he's going to be the lead, he's going to get us home, he's going to follow his instincts, he's going to head west, the other two are going to follow, especially Bodger with his age. Like I, did, I thought they did a really good job of keeping that consistent throughout, because at no point in the movie... Is Luauth ever behind the other two? Like, they're very good about uh, keeping that as a through line. I also really like the way that this is shot because they do a lot of the Oliver and company thing where they bring you down to the dog and cat height to put them in that point of view, but they also get a lot of these really nice wides where it's not just taking advantage of the beautiful cinematography, it's reinforcing this idea of 
how vast the wilderness is and how far from home they're going to be. The only thing, well, there's two things that I bump on up front. They're blatantly calling Bodger a male and they've done nothing to shoot around the fact that yeah. he's clearly not. Yeah. Um, and I feel like they set up the age deficit too fast because first of all, they didn't cast an older dog. This dog is still very much spry and he is keeping up the pace. Um, again, I'm sorry, listeners. You would not last a day. You would not last in the backyard for a day. And now he's rubbing his head like he's insulted. <laughs> That's hysterical. We really have no one to blame but ourselves here. But anyway, back to Bodger. We're hearing in the narration that he's old, his joints are hurting, and yet we're seeing him keep up. So there's definitely a big disconnect here. And I feel like this is where the remake and casting casting voice actors obviously was a big improvement because now you can hear them saying he's old he's tired instead of hearing it from the narrator hearing it from the narration and then seeing something totally different and I wish that they had also pulled back on it a little bit because this now happens a few hours into their journey I feel like if they had maybe waited a week where they haven't eaten compounded with him being older, it would have felt more like an issue as opposed to now the narrator says he's old. They take a drink of water. They decide to press on. And now he's scaling the train tracks, which is my least favorite scene in this entire film. Yeah. I think the fact that they tell us that it's a 200 mile journey the fact that we know that by the end of the movie, they've been out on their own for at least five weeks. Yeah, two hours in and he can't keep up. Like, I hate to say it, but Bodger shouldn't have made it to the end of the movie, right? Like, it just shouldn't have happened. I'm glad that it, that it did, but for all intents and purposes, it shouldn't have happened. Well, while we bring up the 200 miles, I think that's also something that I bump on a little bit. Is the time that it takes to travel those 200 miles because they establish in the very beginning that it's the fall. It's about September. So obviously you've got this impending threat of they have to make it home before the cold weather sets in and figure if they're maybe clearing, even with Bodger being a little bit slower eight to 10 miles a day, this should have taken what, 20 days. But now you're talking about it dragging out over five weeks. And then when they're actually reunited with the family, it's next summer. How on earth did they survive a winter? That's my big question. But I feel like, especially because it's in the Canadian wilderness and they're in the mountains, the nights are going to get cold even the days, 20 days in, are going to get cold. You still could have had that threat of the weather without putting them through an entire winter. I don't think they did put them through an entire winter. I don't think they ever said it was an entire winter that they went through. Because they do say winter's coming. Towards the end of the movie, They do, and you can see that the river is starting to freeze, but they make a big point of these animals know that once the river freezes, it's over. 
I think that they just didn't do a great job of establishing exactly when in the fall we were. Well, no, they said it's an Indian summer, so it's it's September. And they established that the weather's still a little unseasonably warm. But to that point, when the river freezes, they're still 40 miles from home. That could be 40 miles north in the mountains if they have to get down. But then you're still kind of having like a summer-ish birthday party. And we know that the, well, no, I also thought the hunters were on an eight month contract. So I, I thought like almost a school year had gone by. Well, in any rate, see, this is this, but this is the problem you bring up, right? We're here at, you know, by the time we get to the end of the movie, we don't have any idea how much time has passed. Well, we are getting it from the narrator that's it. He's giving us like a weekly count, but it doesn't necessarily match up with what we're seeing. Especially, too, it's not just the weather. It's also the hunger. Like, obviously, they're not going to starve their animal actors. But when we're hearing that they're starving and we're not seeing an emaciated dog, not that I want to see that, it it's very hard to suspend your disbelief. And that's where... Like I said, sometimes this narration is a detriment. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's let's talk about uh, Teo for a minute, um, because to your point, they should be emaciated. They're not. Uh, Teo provides a lot in this movie, whether it be fish, whether it be birds. Protection uh, against a mama bear. Very different in many ways from what they do with Sassy and Homeward Bound, because they gender flop it in the remake, and Sally Field voices the character but she is kind of that little debutante, very prim and proper cat. You know, the butt of the joke more times than not. So it was good to see here that the cat wasn't just the butt end of the joke and that the cat provides so much because you would just assume that the dogs provide anything and the cat's along for the ride. That's kind of what they do in Homeward Bound. Very different here. Right. I mean, you can sort of assume that the dogs are going to be the hunters, but I do like that Teo is holding his own. The only place where I find it a little bit difficult to suspend that disbelief is that Bodger is resting because, you know, they say as much. He collapsed on day two, I think this is. Yeah. And then you get this really cute little scene with the bear cubs. They're so cute. And then, of course, naturally, you get Mama Bear, who thinks that someone is hurting her cubs, even though they're just wrestling. I don't necessarily buy that a cat was going to fend off Mama Bear in this situation, or that Bodger would have even survived at this point. Um, But regardless, this scene is so impressive because... The bears are obviously trained too. And the way that you've choreographed this fight almost is nothing short of spectacular. Yeah. And again, it it sort of serves as a reminder that Walt loved his nature films. Now, this yes. is not a documentary, but remember in 1963, bear in mind the timeline. He's doing more nature films. He's getting away from animation. He's focusing more on live action. Like, this is sort of an amalgamation, this film in particular, about everything that he was prioritizing. And that's why this, I think, was just a really kind of happy accident that we stumbled across it with this theme that we're running this month on its 60th anniversary. Exactly, because this is one of the things that he did best. And 
I appreciate that they showcase that and they let these scenes breathe where you really did get a good look at these animals. Yeah, and they weren't afraid to go for it either. No. Uh, whether it be this scene or, or in a little while when we talk about the, the dam giving, giving out while Teo's on it, like they really did a great job of showing us the peril. And we know that the animals really aren't in any peril, but they do such a good job of leading us to believe that they are in such danger. They do, but that's where we get more conflicting narration because they state that the animals are going to start to travel after dark to avoid being seen. But what they don't see is, is it by other animals? Is that what they're trying to be protected from after this bear incident? Because they, they're they sort of also creating this sense of urgency that they don't want any person to see them and be discovered. Um, and I feel like that's sort of contradictory too, because if they're traveling that far from home, no one would know who they are that's going to say, oh, they belong at this house. Or like, right. of course, John's watching them. Let's bring them back to Longridge's house. You know, This was in the days way before social media where cats and dogs had their own Instagrams where nobody's going to be identifying them and know where to bring them back to. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Jeremy. Poor Jeremy. I love this character. Oh, he's great. He's like feed the birds before feed the birds even was a thing. <laughs> but what's interesting is I didn't realize that he had dementia until I read, like actually read into the plot. I just thought he was a crazy old man. Yeah, I just thought he was like the lonely old coot that you're supposed to, you know, sympathize with because he's on his own. Um, I mean... I love the character. I don't mind that we spent so much time with him, but we are spending a ton of time watching him eat. And then I'm thinking, all right, in the 11th hour, the animals are just going to share that one last bowl that he hasn't eaten yet. But we did this entire scene to just prove that they're polite and well-behaved and they're not going to take food unless it's offered. Even though it had been. Like, why? It's a... W I like the character, but it does seem like a waste of five minutes of screen time. Especially when they also have the rabbit. You could have paced out their food sources a little bit here, too. Yeah, but Lou Alt, he, he doesn't he doesn't trust Jeremy, so he goes, goes and hides his rabbit. That's kind of funny. It was funny, and funny that he went and retrieved it. Um... After this, though, once they break apart, this is where we get into the scene with the dam, the beaver dam giving giving out and Teo being swept down the river. Teo couldn't have made the crossing on Luat's back. I think you're overthinking this. <laughs> um, I mean, I will I will put that aside because up until this point, aside from the bear, they haven't really put the animals in true peril other than the talk of starvation. So to actually see Teo not make this jump took me by surprise. Down the river he goes. And it's so sad. It, it's so well done when uh, Bodger and Luau go down the river and they, they sit and they wait because they they know that eventually the cat's going to pass by them and they'll be able to rescue him and they'll continue on. The cat never comes. And 
they they're sort of matter of fact and they're like well we have to keep going and they're just he's feared dead and they're gonna move on it's actually a very sad scene well done though very well done scene i thought it is it's a rough watch and and so is the next one because once we find out that teo is in fact alive you know he's rescued by this family on their farm and we see this little girl fall in love with teo and she asks her dad can you sing a song to my cat before she goes to bed so clearly she's fallen in love with him and now teo's going to bail on her to get back to the journey i mean it serves the character well because we see how loyal these pets are to their family and that they are going to go to the ends of the earth to get back home um but it's sort of heartbreaking for this family that was willing to take him in. It is and it's not because we can't ignore the fact that they did an incredible thing by rescuing the cat. The cat has a collar on. It's not a stray. For as much explanatory dialogue as we get, not a single human that they encounter points out that they have a collar and they must belong to someone. Yeah, and all three of them do. But you're right, it, it never comes out. Uh, let's talk about the porcupine scene. because well, Before we get to the porcupine, though, okay. Teo encounters a lynx after he decides to go link back up with the dogs, as if he has not been through enough. Like, are you kidding? Well, he has the benefit. I think it's easier for him to escape than the dogs. The dogs can't climb a tree. But a lynx, though, a lynx can climb a tree. So until I, I was like, that's the only way out here. He's got to find a log to hide in. And eventually he does. But I was like, geez, this poor guy's been through quite a bit. He has. It's also a movie. But he has. But I'm saying as far as all of the peril that they are put in, I feel like Teo gets the brunt of it. Because the porcupine quills are bad. But Luath also wasn't washed up a river going into that attack. Correct. But let's talk about the porcupine strike. Um, Luath not knowing that you can't eat a porcupine is trying to be the provider for him and Bodger. Gets stung, is dipping his face in the river to cool the sting every couple of hours. And then they come, they separately come across the hunter and his wife who each retrieve Bodger and Luath. Um, and I love the hunter and his wife. Because Me of, too. of all of the people, I mean, yes, you have the, the farmer and his daughter, that family that helps Teo, but the hunter and his wife. The Mackenzies. Yeah. They know that these animals are lost. They know that somebody's looking for them. Don't call out the collars, but they do agree to hold them for the night and feed them. Correct. So at least they acknowledge that this is not going to be a permanent home for them. Yes. And it doesn't last very long because Teo arrives and breaks them out of the barn. And the three of them go on together. And while this is happening, now John has returned. He's talking to Mrs. Oaks and they realize the miscommunication. Okay. This is my favorite scene with Mrs. Oaks because her worst case scenarios are unhinged. What if they got hit by a car? What if they were poisoned? Lady, they are out in the wilderness. Poison's the least of their problems. Where, where are they going to find poison before they run into a bear, a lynx? Like, th this is where your mind goes? I'm not going to lie to you. It's funny hearing you say that. Because <laughs> you are clearly not present for any of the conversations that you have 
with your mother or your aunt or any other member of the family. This scene hit very close to home. I love Walty. What do you want from okay. me? Okay. All right. All right. Every, everything is a danger. Everything is a worst case scenario. We had to stop the podcast so that I could go bribe him with a chew so he didn't eat the plastic squeaky toy. Moving on. <laughs> um, before we move too far, though, I do want to say these porcupine quills were so impressive. I have no idea how they did this because there's no you didn't put like a prosthetic on a dog. Right. I have no idea how they attached them. However, maybe maybe some kind of glue. Right. But but you don't see it like super it, impressive. Yeah, it looks really good. John tries so hard with Mrs. Oaks. They're on the phone with the park rangers. They're doing everything they can to track them down. And they, I mean, it, it gets repetitive because they keep saying the same thing. They're like, well, Bodger has to be dead and I wouldn't put money on the cat, but Luauf is fine. They, they say it a little too often, but he tries so hard because as he later says, like, I, I, I'm going to have to break the news to the family. The adults will be reasonable, but man, I really am going to have a problem breaking the news to these kids. What I really like that they did here, though, through this series of phone calls was that they made it so you can't put all the pieces together. Yeah. The one family found the cat. The Mackenzies had the dogs. So it's not adding up that these are this. I mean, it should be how many pets with collars are lost in the wilderness. But I think it was a smart choice to get the encounters with them when they were separated all accounted for so that you're still fooling the humans and, and you're still the, the humans are going to think that they're in more peril because even if they do assume that it is the same cat and it is the dogs, well, why are they separated? If, if we found the cat, what happened to the dogs? Are, are the dogs gone for good? Um, so I think this was a really smart way to go about it with the different checkpoints. Do you have anything else before we move to the reunion at the very end of the film? Well, we sort of addressed this before that I thought that they were maybe bending time and distance too much because I'm thinking that this is a year-long contract at Oxford and the way that we see the frozen river, I'm thinking that an entire winter is passing. But now that we've sort of talked through it a little bit more, it's very plausible that it was just because they were so far north and they had to get south. I will buy that and suspend my disbelief. Um, because we do get a hard timestamp from the narrator that the porcupine encounter was in the third week. So that does give legs to what you said about this possibly being over the course of five weeks. I'll buy all of that. But then they sort of drop the ball again because John is meeting with Mrs. Oaks the night before he's got to go and tell them that he doesn't have the animals. He says he's going to fly out to meet them. So am I to understand that these animals were on, that, that you brought them home on a plane that you didn't drive the 200 miles back? And I also got the impression that he lived a lot closer. I mean, th that's where, again, you're bending this distance so much because 200 miles sounds like a lot when you're considering that two dogs and a cat are making that journey. 
but 200 miles seems unrealistic when they're talking about Godfather John staying for Sunday dinner. I'm thinking he lives up the road at that point. So it, that's where, again, they sort of drop the ball with the writing just a little bit. But all that aside, I'll be damned if I didn't have a lump in my throat when these animals come back. Yes, when they all arrive home and you feel bad for the kids because John has the puppy for Peter and it's such a nice offering. <laughs> yes, let me get you a new puppy to make up for my gross negligence. I don't blame John for any of this. Well, don't you? No. Because he agreed to watch them. And then he's got a hunting trip planned. So that's the other thing. They never really established Mrs. Oaks was going to go there every day to let the animals out and feed them. And that also is a three-week time stamp, I believe, on his trip, too. Right. So why would he agree to watch them if he was going to be away? Because he's got Mrs. Oaks, who's familiar with the animals. How? She lives 200 miles away. Well, she they said, I don't know. Let's, let's get off of this. Um... Yeah, nice reunion. All right, let's start talking about the cast, though. I, I gotta <laughs> you just brushed past that. No, we're not logicking this. Nice no, reunion. No, because I, I've never said this to you. In 260 episodes of this show, you are logicking too much. It's a movie. Like, there are certain elements where you suspend reality. Hey, guess what? At the end of the day, I'm going to say something nobody's going to like. Not one of these animals should have lived. If you want to be <laughs> literal, not one of these animals should have lived. But we got the happy ending. And yet that's not what I'm bumping on. All right. Let's let's talk about the cast here. Uh, John Longridge is played by Emil Genest. I thought he was so good. Uh, like I said, no good deed goes unpunished. And he tries so hard. And I think that he was well-intentioned the entire time. I love this character. He He just exudes warmth. He's so good. Yeah, you hate him at the same time. Professor jo uh, James Hunter is played by John Draney. He's he's father. You know what yeah, I mean? Does yeah. that make sense? He's father. He's he's what we've seen in so many. He's not as harsh as the father in Peter Pan or as Mr. Banks. He's softer than that, but he is father. He is the patriarch. He's matter of fact. The children will get over it. See, but I don't, I mean, he's definitely not as rigid as Mr. Banks, especially, you know, I come home, I want my brandy and my, you yeah. know, my wife's got everything ready, my pipe, blah, blah, blah. Um, you certainly, he, he doesn't read that way at all, but I think he's, they even uh, take care in going one step further because he says that Nancy is, um, very supportive of, of this temporary move. Uh, so that was pretty unheard of for the time, you know, when you've got Mary Poppins coming out the next year and Winifred's uh, protesting for votes for women. And here, this guy's got a job offer and he's factoring in, is this going to be okay for my wife? Granted, these films are taking place in completely different time periods. It's just so interesting that you would have such opposing ideas in films that were released a year apart. Right. Sandra Scott plays the aforementioned Nancy. She's good. You know, it's not a shot at her. She just doesn't have a big role in the film. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, they also didn't relegate her to Yes, Dear. Yeah. Marion Finlayson and Ronald Cohoon play Elizabeth and Peter. Other than, you know, again, they did a good job, but other than being the sad kids, 
that remain hopeful, you know, hope springs eternal. That's it. It's hope springs eternal. Like when the day comes, when we eventually do homeward bound, they give those characters a lot more layering. What I like though, is that they didn't make them these plucky kids where it was like, they're out there, they're out there somewhere. I, I kind of like that. They leaned into the sadness. Not that you want to see kids upset over their dead pets because that's terrible but it felt more real that way it did rex allen is our narrator and we would be remiss to not mention him because he's the dialogue for the entire film um i thought he was fine i mean i i think that you and i have two kind of different stances when it comes to the narrator and the narration in general there are moments that are confusing but I feel like that's a knock on the writing, not so much on the narrator himself. And frankly, I thought that this film would lose my interest because of the narrator, and it really didn't at all. Mm, that's where I'm going to disagree with you. But my issues are more with the see and say writing than it is with the delivery. I, I would listen to this guy read a phone book because the tone and the delivery were wonderful. It's just... It conflicted too much with what we were saying. And, and, and that's the thing. It, it's two inconsistent issues with this narration. It's either it's telling us exactly what we are seeing, which is making scenes dragged, or it's contradicting what we're seeing, which to me is more problematic. So final thoughts on The Incredible Journey. I'll go first. Um, I thought that this movie was good. I, I thought that it was beautifully shot. I thought the animal actors were incredible. Um, I think it's. I, I think it'll hold your interest. The remake is better, and I don't say that very often, but I think that Homeward Bound is the much better film when compared to this one. Despite my issues with the narration, I still think this is super charming. Um, I think this is a great example of one of Walt's classic pieces because it does focus on animals it does clearly showcase the documentary work that he was doing and all of these nature shoots that he was interested in so I think it's great for that I'm wondering though how much my story issues he actually had a hand in because if you think about what's going on at the time he's got Disneyland he's got television and he's probably got 47 meetings a day with P.L. Travers trying yeah. to get Mary Poppins out. So I'm wondering if he was being pulled in too many different directions where the film suffered in some ways because he didn't have his hands on it in the way that he did with Mary Poppins. We're interested in knowing what you have to say about The Incredible Journey. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. 
She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks. Like, you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets or you can email me directly, monorealradio at gmail.com. Death and taxes. Disney not knowing what to do with the Muppets. <laughs> oh, no. That's our news for the week. I don't want Marvel. Here's more Marvel. I don't need more Star Wars. The Mandalorian's enough. Star Wars! We want the Muppets. Let's cancel it. Muppets Mayhem. Canceled after one season. I have, a, I have two different schools of thought when it comes to this. The first is everything that I just said. And I don't need to say much more than that. The second school of thought is... I sort of felt like season one had a very natural conclusion. Mm. And I felt to build on it may have been forced. But at the same time, it was one of those rare instances where they got it so right. And I love Adam F. Goldberg so much that... You could have done more, and you're not. So my my faith is in Adam F. Goldberg. Disney's isn't, but you know, Disney doesn't know what to do with the Muppets. Um, it's it's disappointing. But I said it a few months ago. This was going to get canceled because it's Disney and it's the Muppets, and they don't know what the hell to do with them. And I I called it months ago. They were going to cancel it. I'm sure they'll blame the writer strike. But we knew this was going to happen. Yeah. We we said it from the first episode that this was the perfect avenue to bring them back. Um, Adam F. Goldberg is brilliant. Um, the style of this show, the reality docuseries following Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem, it was just such a perfect way to give us a contemporary version of the Muppets. Um, but I, I feel the same way you do. I wrestle with it because I thought that this was the one that was going to have legs and this was really going to be the perfect way to bring them back and do more with them. Um, but at the same time, it could have been a very perfect, complete, 10 episode one-off thing that piqued our interest and then opened the door for other avenues for the Muppets. Um, I think as far as the storylines with um, Nora, Nora, I believe her name is, yeah. um, that was getting convoluted with the love triangle. That I didn't need to see any more of. That was starting to feel like it was dragging. So... I don't feel like writing to that in a season two would have been very effective. I, I think then it would have felt like the show was suffering. But as far as focusing on Dr. Teeth, I think we could have take this and run with it so much more. But I wish they could have left it in a better place. Like it was complete, but they left the door open for season two. I wish you had closed the door if this was what you were going to end up doing anyway. And we knew you were, to your point, writer strike aside. So... I wish we could have just lived in the world where instead this is another season one or, or a uh, 
a series that got canceled, it just could have been a mini series. It could have been WandaVision. Period. End of story. Exactly. Exactly. We want to know how angry you are, because we know how everybody feels, about the cancellation of Muppet Mayhem. You can let us know X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Gave you that social media. We are also on threads and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Happy and safe. Uh, and for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs>